0: This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, Liberated Data Saves Lives. On this episode, we're going to dig into clinical apps and how the use of real-time data in critical situations saves lives. To do that, we're very fortunate to have with us Jeff Dunn, the CEO of Redivis Health, Jeff is a physician-entrepreneur with a love of healthcare, innovation, and technology. He's a true champion of patient safety and quality care. Jeff founded Redivis Health, which is a physician-oriented company whose mission is to save lives and prevent medical errors through the use of advanced clinical decision-making apps. These apps are especially effective during time-critical emergencies. Jeff, welcome to Market Corner Conversations.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you. Hey, Jeff, we we like to start by getting to know our guests a little bit. Could you give us a little bit of your background and tell us how you entered medicine and what is it in particular that drew you into the field of addressing real-time emergencies in time-critical situations?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So my background, um, went to medical school and and internal medicine residency um, back in the early 2000s and spent about eight years as a hospitalist where I wore a lot of hats for that healthcare system. It had 11 hospitals, but uh, was chairman of medicine, was also one of the physician quality leaders. And being on the front line, um, you obviously see a lot of things and you do a lot of things where you wish you could take some, some, some uh, you know, treatments and diagnoses back that you make. So back in 2012, um, it was on a nondescript day, but really um, had a code blue called overhead at the hospital, which is a cardiac arrest. It's the most really stressful, um, anxiety-provoking um, diagnosis that you can really be treating one of your patient's On that nondescript day, um, I went to help out and found that uh, the providers in the room really had what I called adrenaline brain. They might have known everything to do for that patient that was dying right in front of them, but just froze up. So um, unfortunately, that 62-year-old gentleman didn't survive from that event, but it left me really thinking about how many mistakes and errors I made back in the day Mm -hmm. um, in my uh, eight-and-a-half-year career. But really, uh, I started to, to think about what I could do to help providers during those situations in the future so that never happened again.
0: Adrenaline brain, what an interesting concept. Jeff, I know that when I'm in a tense situation, my inner brain is, is pinging out of control with all kinds of questions. And take us into the moment inside a physician's head or, or, or a nurse's head when there's a patient whose heart has stopped and these people are treating them, what, what are these questions that are, that are happening that create the adrenaline brain you've so accurately described that compromises care delivery and effectiveness?
1: Many times these individuals, uh, they will just look unconscious. So the first steps, even the most basic steps of checking a pulse and checking to make sure they're breathing, you know, calling the code, get others to help, get a device, all of these things, then you have to start your CPR compression cycle. There's many meds that you need to give, epinephrine, amiodarone. Um, what's the total time on the event? So as you go through this, these are all timed events as well. So you can imagine you're either going at a million miles or an hour or things almost uh, are slowed down to the point where you are not making decisions fast enough. There's never the right cadence when somebody's dying in front of you. You're either going way too fast or too slow.
0: Do other questions pop in like, wow, I hope this person doesn't die like the last one I treated, that create uh, distraction, um, confusion perhaps?
1: Absolutely. I'll tell you an example. When I was a resident, there was a 35-year-old female with two kids that was in cardiac arrest, and I'll tell you what, myself and the nurse and the, the doctor attending, uh, after that was over, we couldn't, we couldn't get over the fact that that looked like a sister of, of ours. She was old enough to be our sister and to have two kids. So you can imagine those human questions come into your mind, and it always clutters up the ability to execute all of the right decisions.
0: You know the terminology that, that health systems tend to use uh, to describe these unfortunate deaths, like the one you just described, are they call them adverse events? But in reality, the system's actually killing people that otherwise would live. Is that a fair way to characterize this?
1: Well, I would say that um, it's more more of a uh, the, the system isn't supporting providers like it should. Mm-hmm. And, and what I would tell you is the technology is there today to make these changes to support providers. We just need to, to, to move this thing forward in a way that really technology is formed in a simple and intuitive way for even the most time-critical emergencies so that it can augment you during those, those times of
0: need. Yeah, I I'm probably not going to let you off that easy, Jeff, but let's let's dig into some some percentages a little bit here cuz I really do believe the use of these types of apps should be widespread and almost routine that uh, that anybody who has a a cardiac arrest, for example, in a hospital should get the right care at that moment in exactly the right way. And the fact that doesn't happen uh as you say, because the tools are there, um, it, to me, is a black eye, black mark on the system. So – but before we let uh, the audience you kind of reach that conclusion, so why don't you talk a little bit – and let's use cardiac arrest as an example. Obviously, clinical apps can be used for all types of medical emergencies. But uh, let's just talk about cardiac arrest and big picture – how many people a year have it? How many die from it? How quickly does it need to be treated? What is the, the opportunity to save more lives than we currently do? Could you just kind of paint that picture for us?
1: So there's a little over a half million people a year that um, are diagnosed with cardiac arrest. And about 10 of those, 10% of those people end up surviving that event, um, which is an abysmal rate of survival. We also know that uh, through the research that about 30% of the time in those episodes that um, the providers are making mistakes and errors. The place where you want to have a cardiac arrest in the hospital where they have the most practice is the intensive care unit and the emergency room. But unfortunately, cardiac arrest also happens in places where people do not get practice, uh, in radiology, uh, in the restaurant. In the, uh, in the hospital, in a parking garage. So you can imagine there's a lot of different places where people don't have practice going through the steps of a cardiac arrest. And those happen almost as many times as, as being in the ICU or the ER. So bringing something to the forefront um, to help level the playing field, I think is extremely important. So I think that there's an incredible opportunity, there's a variation, if you will, of survival across the board. If you go from one city to another, where Seattle might have a survival of 20% and another city might have a, a cardiac arrest survival of four or 5%. So I think when you talk about where it's happening, if it's outside the hospital versus in the hospital, there are so many variables that, uh, that really tell me that, that something standardized needs to happen.
0: Well, Jeff, if I weren't already sitting down, I'd have to sit down having just heard those numbers. So 450,000 people, give or take a year, die from cardiac arrest. 30% of those treating cardiac arrest make mistakes. There seems to be an enormous opportunity to improve that survival rate through standardization, eliminate the variation— uh, really get at the the mistakes, the waste, the the errors, the delays that uh, lead to, you know, so many untimely deaths. Could you just, just drive the point home a little bit of more on how standardization really does improve outcomes? And then after that, we'll go into the mechanics of, of the actual app and how it works.
1: Yeah. It, I want to talk real, real quickly about Somewhat of the influence behind the company, and mm-hmm. I read a book called Checklist Manifesto uh, several years ago that was written by Atul Gawande. And uh, his major point of the book was standardization in healthcare has to happen, and even if you need a paper checklist to be able to get you there, it will save so many lives. Dr. Peter Pronovost did a study on on central line infections uh, many years ago that showed. Hey, you can move the needle. You can save lives by using a simple standardized checklist um, where uh, you put a a central line in and you do X, Y, and Z every single time. It leads to reliability and accountability, and it leads to results. So essentially, we're taking that whole idea of why do you build a car in a standardized fashion? Why do you build a building uh, in a standardized fashion? Cars won't fall apart. Buildings don't fall down. Why do we think that we're better in health care taking care of patients? It's really the whole idea behind that is sustainability, reliability. And what we're doing at Red of Us Health is really bringing those, that algorithm to the forefront so it's not just a reference, but it actually serves as a guidance tool to get you through that whole scenario, whether that's 50 or 60 decisions that you're making.
0: Checklist Manifesto, that was a great book and it's, it's, it's interesting that you took your personal motivation from that to, to create Redivis and create a solution that really addresses uh, this challenge that it spoke – I could hear the passion as you were describing that. So taking from that that you saw we could do better, let's take the audience through a journey of how you actually created the app. What are the steps that you put in? How is it applied in in these critical situations? What training is necessary for uh, for the staff to do the right thing at the right time in these critical moments?
1: Dave, let me let me first go through kind of a use case of what happens in the hospital currently in a cardiac arrest, and I think it'll help paint the picture. Then we'll start. I'll I'll talk about the you know the idea how we started to test this out, how do, how do we start to build a prototype. Perfect, so perfect. When somebody's in cardiac arrest, that means their heart has stopped and they have stopped breathing. If you do not provide um, any interventions at that time, that patient will die. So in a hospital, there's a, this idea of calling a code blue, which means the patient is in cardiac arrest. It's the highest emergency that you could potentially be in as a healthcare provider. What happens is the nurse usually calls... Um, A code blue overhead, an operator um, fires out over the intercom and says code blue room 112. Everybody swarms around that room like bees and wants to help out. And when the physician gets there, really acts as the orchestrator for all of the decisions that are made during that event. And then there's a senior nurse that acts as the documentation specialist that provides the timing on uh, when to give drugs the CPR cycles, etc. So, what we currently do today is we rely on the physician's memory to try to get through that whole, you know, 35 minute to over an hour cardiac arrest. And I would tell you that that is incredibly flawed. Uh, trying to use the human brain while somebody's dying in front of you with a, with, a, with a flood of adrenaline, uh, it's it's just incredibly hard to to hit the mark on every one of those interventions. So that's the first flaw. The second flaw is um, our ability to document everything that happens during that event. So the nurses trying to keep track of uh, potentially four timers at one time with a clock on the wall. They're trying to log into the EMR. They are many times they can't get into the EMR, so they're using a paper napkin to try to document this, everything that's happening during, during this event or they're writing on their scrubs. So what we really have done with Redivus is create a mobile app that can be launched immediately It gives you really the turn-by-turn navigation through that whole event that brokers you um, through the right steps to take, and it documents everything in real time. So we took the whole idea of going from a paper map to a GPS, an app on your phone, Google Maps or Waze, that whole idea of getting turn-by-turn, going from point A to point B, we really took that idea and combined it with the checklist to really create what we have today as the cardiac arrest app like Redivus Health. We built that in a simulated setting. So a simulated setting is I'm going to bring this software prototype because we think that this is going to help providers do the right thing, make the right decisions. We're going to take that and test that and iterate that multiple times. So I'm going to give this to a nurse. I'm going to give it to a doctor. I'm going to give a, so I'm going to put this dummy that's uh, potentially – quarter of a million dollars into cardiac arrest and see what happens, status quo, what currently happens, and what the application does. So I can tell you, we made a lot of assumptions that did not work in that simulated setting. So for instance, logging into an application. Many times when a patient is dying in front of you, you cannot remember your username and log in. So we have a quick shortcut to get into the application to where you can log in later. There was multiple things that we were able to improve upon once we were testing this out in simulation. And I think the world of simulation, I think that healthcare is going to be a better place because we're practicing on uh, these dummies rather than human beings.
0: Yeah, these dummies aren't dummies. And it replaces that old methodology, which I always thought was crazy of see one, do one, teach one. (laughs) So simulation enabled you both to get the bugs out of the system and I assume to enable teams of people to train together to just be better in the moment every time. Talk to us about um, sort of the real-life application now. We're going from the simulation room into, into the hospitals and sometimes even out into the, uh, out into the, the community when people have uh, cardiac arrest. How's the app working, and, and what can you tell us about its, its effectiveness and success in driving up the percentage of people who live who might otherwise have died?
1: Yep. I'd, I'd be remiss if I mentioned the implementation process of this is extremely important. So what we do is we have video modules for providers um, before they actually use this in a real cardiac arrest scenario. Over 95% of the time, this is the nurse that's using our application to provide the decision prompts and to be the documenter for the full event. Hmm. We have sites that are putting an iPad mini on every crash cart and launching this immediately when uh, when once they grab the defibrillator device, the shock machine, they grab the iPad mini, launch our app immediately so they get in, They're able to document the full event and really able to adhere to the guidelines 100%. We also have facilities that have bought all of their nurse providers um, devices, so phone devices for scanners, et cetera, that use it for messaging purposes. So in that scenario, we would load our application, which is iOS or Android, on that mobile device so they can have it on their person at all times. So it's somewhat of a security blanket. If they have a cardiac arrest, there's no more fret, there's no more uh, crisis. It's really, hey, launch Redivis, and really it becomes your support device that that allows you to get through that whole event and feel good about it and confident that you're doing the right thing.
0: And you said 95% of the time a nurse is is running the app. So that individual is really like having a coach on the field, right? I mean.
1: And what I tell people, it's a lot like using a a GPS application. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you know the best way to get there, right? And that's when you go off script sometimes. It absolutely applies to what we're talking about here. Many times the physician will know, okay, I'm gonna put these three or four data inputs in and I need to go off script here and do something different. But I would say a majority of the time, greater than ninety percent of the time you 're following
0: a protocol to the T and and so tell the audience about outcomes this sounds uh, this sounds incredible, so how does it translate into keeping more people alive?
1: yeah, here's what we know. so on the research uh, on a research basis, we just did a study with a cardiac researcher in Kansas City who um, is very intimately known by the American uh, Heart Association, which publishes the the ACLS guidelines for cardiac arrest. We found by what we did is we did a study with 57 internal medicine residents. These are doctors in training, and really had the opportunity to um, have them go through a 12 minute cardiac arrest before go through it with the status quo, and then and then do a little bit of education, five-minute education on the app, and then go run a a cardiac arrest with our application. What we found there that will be published likely soon um, is that um, we increased the compression fraction percentage by 2%, um, which uh, whether that was statistically significant or not, um, that's debatable. But the good thing is it's not hurting the time that you're on the chest doing CPR. It's actually improving that. We also showed in that study that um, it improved, increased uh, the correct interventions that were being made, the right steps, the executing the right steps by 22% of the time. So those doctors in training are making better decisions for that dummy um, during, that, uh, during that research uh, study.
0: One thing I noticed, and I probably should have picked it up, is Jeff used a very technical term in describing... Uh, the chest compression, it improved by 2%.
1: Yeah, compression fraction percentage. So what we know, what's been proven to benefit a patient that's in cardiac arrest is the more time that you're on the chest, meaning doing chest compressions, doing CPR, is called compression fraction percentage. So we want that. We don't want long pauses of where you're not artificially... Uh, pressing on the chest to where the heart is pumping to get blood to all the organs, including the brain, the kidneys, the lungs, etc, so the more time you 're not off the chest and you 're doing chest compressions that 's better for the patient and then lastly, which is the most eye opening is that it decreased mistakes and errors made by sixty six percent
0: oh my goodness, so
1: you can imagine here 's what I uh, tell people is um, It's hard to do a study with cardiac arrest, a prospective study, but I believe that's the next step of where we're going with this. But I will tell you this. I think in the real-world scenario, the numbers are actually going to be more um, intriguing than they are in that study because you don't really get true adrenaline brain unless somebody's truly dying in front of you.
0: Right. The dummy's going to live to fight another day, so to speak. (laughs) So to speak. Well, Okay. I'm convinced. I bet most of our listeners are convinced. Why aren't we using applications like this in every hospital in America?
1: Yeah, we have a lot of early early customers. Um I would say that change is very hard for healthcare. Um there's just so many obstacles to introducing A new tool or a new way to do things, even if it's if it's just a new way to practice in general. So, you know, why why aren't checklists, paper checklists, being used all across the United States in our in our operating rooms? It's because change is hard. And what I will tell you is, we as a society need to get to the point where we're demanding that these things are done because there's better outcomes, and they've been proven over time. So um, I would say this also, to add on to that, healthcare systems are tough to sell into. There's a very long sales cycle. There's, uh, you know, It's, it's um, approval by committee. So it's, it's a gauntlet, Dave. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you obviously know this, but uh, it's, it's difficult to introduce new technologies, even if they're saving lives into our healthcare system.
0: Yeah, I do know this and um, uh, Steve Clasco, the CEO of uh, Jefferson Health uh, likes to say that or has made the observation that there are four biases that infect uh, medicine. He even calls it a cult of medicine. It's a bias um, for control, a bias for hierarchy, a bias for autonomy and a bias against innovation and my sense is you're running into all of those um, and the consequence of that is what you're saying is that the outcomes are worse and Correct. yet we yet we tolerate it. So how can we break through – how do we deprogram these biases in such a way that um, we make people on the front lines, the caregivers more receptive to using the tools and – in in the process, actually reduce their own stress and frustration with people dying that otherwise could have lived?
1: Um, I would say this. We have to start at the medical school or the nursing school level. Mm -hmm. This whole idea that you should know everything and that you should not use any cognitive aids, etc., is completely... uh, false, and I think it uh, gives a lack of uh, awareness and truthfulness to how human beings uh, function. Human beings are meant to make mistakes, mm-hmm. and as the adrenaline gets higher, the mistakes are made more often, so this gladiator mentality of I should know everything off of my memory and I don't need any help is part of the problem, and that's, that needs to stop in medical schools and residency programs and in nursing schools, you know, if, if, if we teach our pilots when both their engines stall to pull out a checklist, then we surely should be treating when a patient goes into cardiac arrest and there's a life on the line, that we should use every single tool we possibly can to give them the best chance at, at surviving that event.
0: We focused here tonight on uh, cardiac arrest. Um, what other Applications are out and available today where we could dramatically improve outcomes by using this same proven, systematic, standardized approach to treatment in critical moments.
1: As you can imagine, um, the the software platform that we've uh, created, you can put any time-critical diagnosis into it. So uh, we believe that cardiac arrest is our beachhead opportunity to prove this out, but things like sepsis... Um, that cost our healthcare system 26 27 billion dollars in the United States that happens to about a million and a half people uh, there's applications there's decision support out there that that needs to be used um, by our providers stroke is another thing heart attack respiratory failure trauma all of these things that are time critical providers need to use these cognitive aids to help them get through that event so they can have confidence they can it can uh, there's consistency and there's reliability with their care, and I can tell you, Dave. At the end of the day, there's nothing worse than than looking back and saying, "I could have done something different for that patient," and that patient uh, f- uh, died, or or else they have, uh, you know, they they have weakness on the right side for the rest of their life.
0: I couldn't agree with you more.
1: So there is a lot of technology out there. I think as a healthcare system. Across the United States, we need to be more open uh, to using the tools that are currently out there.
0: Wow, so powerful! Well, we wish you uh, Godspeed in 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 your efforts, both with Redivis, but also with the larger challenge. And and we're we're going to be there to support and 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 make the case as well that. Uh, the culture of medicine needs to adapt to these technologies and make life easier on the frontline caregivers. And I started uh, the episode by saying liberated data saves lives and I, I believe you've made that that case uh, in a compelling – or that you've proven that, that truism in a compelling fashion. So we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us and explain um, – how clinical apps really can change medicine for the better, save lives, improve clinical care at the, at the moment it needs uh, its, in its most critical time, at its most critical moments. And in the process, make our, our caregivers, our frontline clinicians better and less subject to the traumas that come with failure. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. If you're frustrated with healthcare. If you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.